And may us just pray where we are right now. Father, as we think about where you brought us from, slaves of fear, dead in sin, and you didn't say, act nicer, get your life together, help out a bunch of people. You said, I have come to you in your darkness. I have come to you in your pain. And there is hope. It's a hope that leads us into the future that you have laid out before us. It's a hope that allows us to stand and seen. It's a hope that drives us to our knees, God, seeking your direction, seeking your will. And so, Father, we have come together this morning to declare that. And, Father, we move ahead in the power of your Holy Spirit on the basis of the Word of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. All right, kids, hang tight. I know that normally you would run as fast as you could to that door, and you're going to get a chance to do that in just a second. But, but hang, hang tight just for a second. We are going to, right now in our service, take up our offering. I know we throw this around in different parts of the service. Sometimes it's at the very end. Sometimes we do it a little bit earlier. We're going to do that now. And the main reason we're going to do that right now is I want our kids from time to time to be in here while we take up the offering. Kids, here in a second, as these plates start to come around, I'm going to tell you when that's going to happen. But here in a second, when these plates come around, know that when you're putting your money in there or you see people putting their money in there, they're not doing that to earn God's approval. They're not doing that to try to buy something for themselves. When we do this, when we take up the offering, it's a way of saying, God, everything I have is from you. And so everything I have is going to be for you. And when we're able to give together, we don't give to the church, we give as the church. You're not giving to something separate than who we already are. We are gathered as the church, and so we give as the church. as our response to what God has done in our lives. And so sometimes on a day like today when we're thinking about the future, and as leaders we can be the world's worst of always driving to what's next and thinking of what's next, can I take a chance as the pastor and just say thank you? Thank you for who you are as a church. Thank you for what you do in giving of your time, giving of your resources, giving of the gifts that God has placed before you. I never want us to say, hey, here's what's coming next, here's what's coming next, without just slowing down and saying thank you. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for all that you've given us. And so we're going to have a chance to celebrate that now during this time. If you have a plate around you, if you could grab that and begin to pass it down the aisle. I know you've got to look tucked under the, tucked under the seats. Also, at the same time, I want you to be able to watch a video on the screen. Watch this video. It relates to giving, but it also is a good introduction to the sermon. So we're going to take up the offering, put those guest cards in there as well. Watch this video here on the screen. Let's face it, we're not living in the same world we lived in 50 years ago, or even five years ago. The tools we use to work, play, and stay in touch are changing so quickly. And if you don't change with them, well, you're being left in the dust. Some people embrace change. They look forward to the next new gadget. They get bored with the old way of doing things. 
Learning the next big thing comes naturally to them. They revel in cutting-edge technology. At the same time, many people value the familiar. They're comfortable there. They dread starting over, learning a new process, and they may even fear the unknown. All the new lingo seems like a foreign language to them. The question is, can these two groups of people come together and unite for a higher purpose? To cooperate, using new tools while embracing an old, time-tested method, which is what Southern Baptists do through the cooperative program. CP is the way Southern Baptists have funded missions at home and around the world for nearly 100 years, sharing a message that's as urgent today as it was 2,000 years ago. No matter how much our culture changes, there still are children hurting and in need of a Christian family. No matter how much technology changes, there still are victims of disasters who need healing. No matter how much transportation changes, there still are millions and unreached people groups around the world. And no matter how much communication changes, there still are nearly two billion people who have never heard the name of Jesus. One thing that never becomes obsolete is the value of people and churches working together to accomplish more than they could ever do on their own. Through the cooperative program, we can bring light to a very dark world and eternal life to a lost and dying planet. We can keep nearly 10,000 full-time missionaries on the field, provide a Christian education for the next generation of Southern Baptist leaders, plant thousands of new churches, feed the hungry, provide a biblical worldview to our elected and appointed officials, and so much more. So, let's face it, there are some things that don't change. They just keep on working. That's why we say that through the cooperative program, we do more together. All right, pre-K through first graders, you guys did great. Head to Elevate, you can head to Children's Church. If this is your first time with us here at Emmaus, and you have a pre-K through first grader, and they would like to be a part of a Children's Church time, they're always welcome to stay in here. There's never any obligation to do this, but if that's something they would enjoy, you can go right back here to this back door, and they'll be right through this wall here in the, uh, in the choir room. So uh, if you would, open your Bible to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. If you have access to God's Word on your phone and you want to bring that out, we are continuing our series through the book of Joshua on Sunday mornings. Hence our rocks that are still up here on the stage from last week. Last week, these rocks were here as we talked about Joshua chapter 4 and God leading the people through the Jordan River. And they took 12 rocks out of the river and set up this memorial that would be a sign to future generations of God's faithfulness. And so we didn't get the rocks returned. And last, last week, I gave an advertisement for the wrong rock place. Uh, these came from the uh, Ace Hardware over toward Tri-City, uh, Rock Hollow is the one who donated, donated these rocks. So I want to make sure I get my, get my advertisement correct on these, these rocks. So last week, last week we talked about how the God who has been faithful in the past is the God who will be faithful today and faithful tomorrow. That we are able to know that God has worked up to this point and he will continue to work. He doesn't change. We can continue to trust him. So that was the past, looking back. God calls the people to look back. Joshua 5, we start the process of looking forward. 
My family has been here at Emmaus for almost two years, uh, which is a big deal for us. We don't stay places very long. We would really like to stay here for a while, uh, Lord willing, if that works out. So this is, this is a big deal for us coming up on two years at this point. But we've coming up on two years, and from before we got here to the first week that we were here to this last week unsolicited coming to me, people are always asking, hey, what's next? Where are we going? What does it look like in the future? And those are exactly what we have to think about. Where is God leading us? Where is God taking us as a church in the future? This morning is not laying out a detailed strategic plan of that. This morning, though, is a chance to go to God's word and say, how does Joshua 5 provide a framework for us moving ahead? We have to think about the God who has been faithful, and we have to think about the God that's leading us into the future, and Joshua 5 is going to give us a chance to do that. Look in verse 1, if you would, with me. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel." This verse right here is our sign in the book of Joshua that everything is pointing to the future. The reason that's the case is if you flip over in your own copy of the Bible or you scroll down in your phone and you go to chapter 9 verse 1 and you go to chapter 10 verse 1 and you go to chapter 11 verse 1, you're going to find almost the exact same phrasing repeated. So chapter 5 verse 1 is the writer's way of saying, and now we're moving forward. God has brought us into the promised land, and now everything else from this point forward is going to be how do we take ownership of the land? How do we begin to live in the land? Joshua 5 verse 1 is your marker in the book that everything is starting to move ahead, that we're going to move into a new stage. It's going to continue to have some of the same themes. In fact, you're going to find a lot of the same themes throughout the book, but this is the marker that says, hey, it's time to move forward. On your uh, copy of the bulletin, if you got one of the bulletins as you come in and you want to turn it over to the back, there's some sermon notes there that, that might be of interest. If you're a person who listens better with a little bit of a structure or framework, you've got that on the back of the bulletin there. But you can look at the previous weeks of this sermon series, how we see how God has brought us from death to life. And he wants to take us from life to abundant life. And that happens because he's merciful. It happens because he's miraculously powerful. We're called to look back to see how he's faithful, and now we begin to look to the future. There are these contrasts that we run into in church life. We've talked about this before. There's the word people who like the teaching, the intellectual side, you listen to bot radio. Then there's the people that are more spirit people. You like the music. Why can't these guys just keep going and you just sit back down, Owen? You know, like, that's your idea. That's what you love to, to do. And, and we, we create these divisions between word and faith that are never meant to be divisions in Scripture. They always have to fit together. We create these divisions uh, that, that come up in church between the Pharisees and the prodigals. Both the Pharisees and the prodigals need Jesus just as much, but trying to figure out how to make sense of that together in a church is so hard. But you can throw all those divisions out the window when you get to the division between old and new. Should we hold on to the past? Should we hold on to these traditions, these things that have meant so much to us? Or should we move into the future and figure out what's next and where is God taking us? And you, you create this tension between old and new that we're always living in. 
And it's a tension that God doesn't let us escape. In fact, it, I'd go so far to say it's a necessary tension to understand the fullness of the Christian life is what does it mean to hold on to the old? What does it mean to move into the future, to move into the new? And there's a phrase that I think help, is helpful here. It's the phrase ancient future. That the future that God has for us is an ancient future. And each of the points on your notes this morning is going to have an ancient component and it's going to have a future component because there's a component of the old that we can't let go of. And yet we have to be willing to move ahead into things that are new. How do we move ahead into an ancient future? Well, Joshua 5 is kind of a strange passage. I panicked about halfway through the week about what am I going to do with Joshua 5. What we're going to do is we're going to use the Great Commission. If you're not familiar with church language there, that's, that's my, my fault there. But when we say Great Commission, we're talking the very end of the book of Matthew in the New Testament. Jesus gives something called the Great Commission where just as he is returning to heaven, this is after his resurrection, just before he's returning to heaven, he tells his people, he says, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. And then he tells them how they're supposed to do that. He's laying out for them what that future life is going to look like. And so we're going to use the Great Commission as the framework for the sermon this morning. What is God calling us to? The Great Commission matches up so well with Joshua 5. Let me show you how that works. Verse 2. Joshua 5, verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. Okay, kids, if you don't know what the word circumcise means, you just ask your parents uh, when you get home. You'll have the opportunity to, to do that. So that's why we love to gather together in, in worship there. So you have a chance. This is my payback for making Jaron preach over the summer from the passage in Colossians about circumcision. So this is me getting paid back for, uh, for doing that over, over the summer. So, so what's going on here? Well, get, circumcision has been from the time in Genesis through Exodus up to this point, the marker of who represented the people of God, who were the people of God, that they were set apart. You can actually see this in Genesis chapter 17. I've got these verses just for a quick reference on the screen. This is the establishment of God's covenant with Abraham where he's setting out this idea of, of how they would be set apart. So no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Now how is that going to happen? Well, it says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. I will be God to you and your offspring after you. I will continue to be God. Then watch how this happens here at the end. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Genesis 17 and Joshua 5 are meant to connect together in your Bible. In Genesis 17, God sets out this promise to Abraham of how he will establish his people. And circumcision will be this sign, it will be this marker of who represents the people of God. And it says specifically there, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. 
What's the problem when you get to Joshua 5? That hasn't happened. Go back to Joshua 5 in your phone or your Bible. Verse 4. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Verse 5. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Uh, Just stopping just for a second there. Let verse 7 strike a little bit of fear in your heart. What does it mean that God had to raise up in their place children who would follow after him? It's because... Here, the previous generation had not been faithful to pass down to the next generation this covenant that God had set before them. This marker of circumcision was to set aside the people. And if they weren't doing this, you know they weren't doing the other parts of the covenant. And so God raises up in their place a generation who will obey him, who will be faithful to him, who will worship him. You get to verse 8. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, They remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Okay, now, there's an element of faith built in here. Because remember, at this point, they have crossed over the Jordan River. They're on the west side of the Jordan River, and they're getting ready to move into the Promised Land where they are going to have to engage in intense warfare. They are vulnerable at this position because they are now in enemy territory, And the first thing God tells them to do is, and I want you to be circumcised, and it's going to take a few days to heal up and be ready to fight again. Ultimate act of faith of God, this does not make any sense, but we will trust you. We will worship you. What God is setting before them is something that we're going to see a couple of times this morning. It's the idea that they are not going in to fight any normal war. That this is not just about military conquest. There's something bigger going on here. And it's the idea of being set apart to holiness. It's the idea of being separated from sin and dedicated to God. That that's the type of battle that God is calling them to fight. He's going to take care of the warfare part of it. He is calling them to give themselves completely to his ways, to his will, to his covenant. Verse 9, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. If you have a fancy Bible that has those footnotes and sometimes gives you some extra information or if your phone allows you to tap a footnote, you'll probably find out that Gilgal comes from the same word that means to roll something. Uh, So there's an intense wordplay going on in verse 9. At Gilgal, which means to roll, God has rolled away. He has removed their reproach, their shame. Don't forget the last song we sang before we came to this point of worship, that we are no longer slaves to fear. The people of Israel were mocked. They were living under shame because of their past of slavery. The people said, what kind of God is that that would allow his people to live in slavery? 
But at Gilgal, that's been removed. I want you to keep that idea in mind and look at these verses on the screen from Colossians chapter 2. What we're going to do is we're going to tie together circumcision, baptism, and this idea that God removes the shame of his people. So Colossians 2, in him, speaking of Christ, in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Oh, praise the Lord. That, that's how we're. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, in which you were also raised with him through faith. That's how circumcision works in the New Testament. It's a circumcision by faith. It's by faith I am identifying with the people of God. I'm saying in Christ I find salvation. In which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Then look how, look how this transitions. You who were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. And then it gets better. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Here's what I want you to see. In the Old Testament, God is saying, I will rescue my people. Give yourself fully to, to me and I will take care of you. I will take away all your shame. I will take away all your past. I will take away all your death and I will give you life and hope in a future. He does the same thing for us through Jesus Christ. What's the result of that? It's that we worship him completely. On your notes, you're gonna see the word up in capital letters. At Emmaus, we use three words to kind of describe who we are as a church, who we want to be as believers, up, in, and out. Up means we give ourselves fully to the Lord. That when he says, I want you to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's our way of saying, and I'm giving myself completely to you. I am trusting you. There is no hope in baptism apart from faith in Jesus Christ. That when we identify with Christ, we find that hope and that salvation. So what's the ancient component we're holding on to? It's, there's no new gospel. There's no new good news. It's the same good news that God has always provided for his people, that he rescues them and then he calls them to holiness. So what can we not get rid of as Emmaus? We don't come with any new gospel. We don't come with any new savior. We don't come with any new hope for people. We offer Jesus, that he has done for you what you could never do for yourself, that he has stood in your place so that you would be able to stand before God for all of eternity. That is the hope. And it doesn't end there. It's that that happens in order that we could be made holy, that we would be separated from sin and dedicated to him. And so that we cannot lose. What's the future component? That must be passed to new generations. How much do we not want it to be said of us what was said in Joshua 5, 7? That God had to come along and raise up a new generation because the generation that was in place did not pass along God's covenant to the next generation. God, let that not be said of us that we are passing along this idea of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, on to next generation. So are we committed to that? Is that what we want to do? Is that who we want to be? Older generation, if the future of Emmaus 
was built on your passion for the gospel, your engagement in worship, and your pursuit of holiness, what would be the state of our church? If the future of Emmaus was built on your passion for the gospel, your engagement in worship, and your pursuit of holiness, what are we passing on? Are we committed to doing that? And younger generation, that you would look at an older generation and say, we need an example of holiness. We want to learn the gospel from you. We are looking to you to pass this on to us. Don't hold on to it. Pass it on to us so we know what it looks like to follow Christ completely. That there's no competition here, but there's a generation saying, I will give up everything. I will give up everything, all traditions, all anything that would stand in the way as long as I can pass along gospel and holy living. And a younger generation that says that's all we want. We just want to see what it looks like when the gospel is lived out. So what happens in verse 10? In verse 10, after they're healed and they're able to move ahead, verse 10, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. This is another sign that the book of Joshua is moving forward. All this time in the wilderness, They've eaten this bread that's come from heaven. It's been a miraculous provision that God's provided for them. But now he says, you're in that land. Eat the food that's been provided for you. This is the preparation to take part in the milk and honey, the land that's flowing with milk and honey. I have all this set before you. Don't continue to eat what was in the past. It's time to move forward. It's time to live completely in this promised land. So they take the Passover then the next day, they have to keep eating, so they eat of the land. What it gives us a picture of here is in the Great Commission where it says, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. The way that we teach one another, the way that we learn to follow the Lord, is we gather together in worship. We call it the Lord's Supper. We gather together around the body and blood of Jesus, reminded of that. But that little cracker and that little cup of juice, you're still going to be hungry when you go home for lunch. Uh, unless you, like, work with the cleanup crew and you chug all the leftover juice. Not saying that anybody does that, but uh, you know, even then, you're still kind of hungry. And if you make a mistake and you take those little purple cups that are in the middle of the tray that are the gluten-free crackers and you didn't know it was a gluten-free cracker and then it tastes really stale, then you're really in trouble because you're really hungry uh, when, when you go home after that. But we gather together, we think about what God has done for us, and then you continue to study the Word. You continue to say, God, I can't live on bread alone, but only on the words that come from you. And so what are we passing on? What are we holding on to that's ancient here? We're holding on to the same word and the same church. At Emmaus, we call this in, that I'm connecting to Scripture, I'm connecting to the Word of God, and I'm connecting to other believers. Word and church. Those realities we can't let go of. What do we have to pass on if we lose the word of God and the gathering of the people of God? At that point, what kind of biblical Christianity are you left with? None. If you lose the Bible and you lose the church, you've lost everything that Jesus is laying before us. And so we are going to say as a church, we will not let go of the word of God. 
And we will not let go of the priority of the church gathered together as the people of God. Those two things must remain. But what does that mean for the future? This food may be delivered in a little bit of a different way. If we say, yes, we need the word, yes, we need the church, and it has to be delivered and offered in the exact same way, that's, that's not what's being said here. We're saying, hold on to the word, hold on to the church, and realize that new delivery methods may come. Now, does it matter how it's delivered? Yes, because you're always communicating through how you do something. How we deliver the word of God how do we deliver what it means to be a church? It does matter, so don't get, don't get me wrong there, because you're always communicating something by that. But what we're saying is it's okay and it's even necessary to sometimes rethink how we gather together around the Word of God and how we gather together as, as a church. Now, at this point, it gets tricky because you say, oh, and I'd really like to know if there's anything going on you know, behind the scenes that you're not telling me. No, I don't have anything strategic to lay out except that I would just beg you to be a church that's committed to the word in the church and beg you to be a church that holds with an open hand those realities to say, God, we want to set this before you. So one of the things that is strange kind of about what it means to be a part of a church is most of what we do is an avenue or a channel. It's not an end goal. So take Sunday school, for example. In Sunday school, you gather together around the word, and you gather with the people of God. But Sunday school is only a delivery method. It's, it's an avenue, it's a channel, it's a way to do that. Word matters, people of God matter. Delivery method, it's just a delivery method. It's not an end goal. The end goal is not that you attend a Sunday school class or a small group. The end goal is that you know God's word and you know God's people. How we get to that point, that's where the discussion happens. That's where we think through these things. Men's ministry, women's ministry, youth ministry, children's ministry. The way we try to think of those at Emmaus is if you are a female and you walk through the doors of Emmaus, you are a part of the women's ministry. So coming up here in a couple of weeks, November, first weekend of November, our ladies are putting on an opportunity called My Favorite Things. It's a great chance to invite your friends. I want you to come and be a part of that. It'd be a really good opportunity to connect with other ladies. But that's not the women's ministry. That's just an avenue. That's just an opportunity to connect with other ladies. Guys, we offer Bible studies during the week to connect with other men. But the men's ministry is not the men that goes to those Bible studies. The men's ministry is every man who walks through the door at Emmaus. And so every one of our ministries, the end goal, students, is not that you would be a part of the youth group. The end goal is that you would know God's word and you would be a part of God's church. That's the end goal. The only reason we do youth ministry is because it's a kind of a way to help make that happen. As a church, commit to the word, commit to the people of God, and then how we deliver that is a conversation we just have to keep having. We have to keep looking to the future and saying, are we doing the best job possible to make word and church happen? If not, open-handed, let's go back to the drawing board. Let's figure out how to get those things right. Okay, number three. So baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Joshua 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. 
And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Uh, quick slowdown there for, for verse 13. That phrase, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword. If you like to write in your Bible or, or make some connections here, you've got a couple of things going on. Uh, you have the story of Balaam and his donkey back in Numbers, uh, what is it? Numbers 22. Numbers 22 is one of the other places you find this in the Old Testament. The other place is 1 Chronicles chapter 21, where David issues a census that he actually wasn't supposed to issue, and so a man stands before him with a drawn sword. Generally speaking, the Bible, when a man stands before you with a drawn sword, not good. Some, something's gone wrong. You're facing a situation where judgment is coming. This story also, for me, kind of brings to mind uh, what chapter? Genesis 32, where Jacob has the run-in uh, with that man at the river, and he has this divine encounter. You also have a little bit of this story that seems to tie back to Moses before the burning bush. This divine encounter that Moses has, which God is preparing him for what comes next. Something about this story is meant to show us that Joshua is having this divine encounter before he embarks on a very serious mission. Because you see there at the end of verse 13, it says, Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Here in a second, we're going to have to answer the question, what's wrong with Joshua's question there? The problem with Joshua's question, the problem with Joshua's question there is that he is thinking of it as a simple battle. It's us versus the enemies. Watch why that doesn't work. Look in verse 14. The man said, no. So are you for us or for our adversaries? No, parentheses, you've missed the point, in parentheses. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua at this point gets it. He fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. These verses at the end of chapter 5 are more of an introduction to chapter 6. Those chapter marks in your Bible sometimes cause confusion. Really, the end of chapter 5 is more of the first verses of chapter 6. God is preparing him for the mission of going in and taking Jericho. But the way he prepares him for that is he doesn't lay out any sort of battle plan. What he says is, remember that what you're embarking on is not a simple war. It's not this idea that you need a military, military strategy. What you really need is me, my power, my presence. Which is a good reminder in church life that the mission that God has called us to is not a mission of this world. It's not competition. Lord knows it's not competition with any other church body. It's not a competition where it's us against other people. Remember that passage from Matthew 28 that we talked about earlier, the Great Commission? Look at how what goes on there in Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, all the authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When Jesus is sending his people out on mission, he wants them to know they're going because of his power and authority. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
as God calls us out to be his church, what ancient component do we have to hold on to? It's the same power and the same purpose that has already been there. Can I tell you what Emmaus does not need? We don't need a new strategy. We don't need a new purpose. We don't need a new power. That has been provided through the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus on the basis of the word of God. We, we don't need, what we need is to do what Joshua did and fall down before the Lord. The world is changing so fast now that a lot of leadership experts will tell you that any sort of long-range plan beyond maybe three to five years maximum, you're just totally wasting your time. Because you set out these long-range plans, of, I think this is what it should look like, and this is what it should look like. You know, there's, there's a place for that. But then you wake up the next day, and your plan is just gone. As Emmaus, what we need desperately is to come into the presence of the all-powerful God. And to say, Father, don't let us take another step as a church without remembering that it is only your power that will lead us forward. And we will only go ahead for your purposes. And what that opens up for the future are new opportunities. God, lay before us new opportunities. On your question, or on your uh, notes, I put a question there. That I think it's something we need to think really seriously about. Would we be perfectly fine if everything continued as is? So would you be perfectly fine? God, don't mess up anything. Don't change anything about how we do things. Don't change anything. Uh, please don't mess anything up, God. Let, let's just be this moving ahead. Sometimes there's a part of us that says, oh, yeah, that, that kind of sounds appealing. Uh, I've told you about the fact that when I go through the uh, drive through at McDonald's on my way on Sunday morning, the lady knows my order before I get there. I'm not exactly Mr. Change uh, or Mr. Spontaneity, if you, if you haven't noticed that before. So, uh, but I want to set before the Lord and say, what new opportunities do you have for us? Where are you leading us that we could only go because of your power, your presence, your purposes? What are you leading us to do? To those younger than you, and this is on your notes, I think, if it got printed the way I meant for it to, to those younger than you, can you say, I am committed to future generations who will live with greater dedication and passion than ever before. If you haven't seen already, God is raising up a generation of people who are so committed and passionate for him. Chunk out all this junk that you hear about millennials and younger generations when you look around, and, and these folks that have led for us this morning would tell you this as well, I think, God is raising up a generation of students and young adults who are extremely passionate and dedicated to him. As an older generation, can you say, I want nothing more than for you to live in that passion and in that dedication, and I will do everything in my power to make that happen for you. We're going to hold on to the gospel we're going to hold on to the word of God. We're going to hold on to what it means to be the church. But everything else, all we care about is continuing to live into the future that God's called us to. And younger generation, can you say to those older, I am committed to the gospel, to the word of God, and to the church with greater dedication and passion than ever before. 
When people ask me about Emmaus, uh, and I hope this isn't just a stock answer. Five years from now, it wouldn't work, but right now I think it still works. I just say, I can't wait to see what God is going to do in and through us. I cannot wait to see what God is going to do in and through us. I live with anticipation, with expectancy, that we will live into an ancient future where we hold on to the gospel, to the word, to the church, but we will say everything else is on the table because all we want to do is be the church that God has created us to be. It's not easy to do. It only happens when we lay down our preferences, our priorities, and say, God, we submit everything to you. When we do what Joshua does at the end of chapter five as he prepares for what God has for him next. We're gonna get ready at this point to to wrap up our service. So here's, here's how we're gonna do this. I'm gonna pray for us here in just a moment. As I pray, the band's gonna come up and get set up for a final song that we're gonna sing together. Let me give you a couple of options during that song of, of what you could do. The best way that you could respond might just be that you stand up and you sing with all your heart. It may not be a song you know particularly well, but you say, you know what, I'm gonna stand up and I'm gonna sing that song with all my heart because I wanna give myself fully to the Lord. That's a good way to respond. If you're really uncertain about your own faith, you say, oh, and you're talking a lot about the future, but man, I got some problems now. If you need someone to talk to, you need someone to pray with you, that guest card that's there in front of you in the seat back, if you want to fill that out during this last song, and there are some boxes on the wall as you exit, or you can give that to one of our folks at one of those back tables, do that. Your response during this final song might be, I just need to get serious about the things of the Lord. If you think you are too old to get serious about the Lord, Taiwana would be glad to talk to you about that from her baptism this morning saying, you know what, I'm going to commit myself fully to the Lord. I'm going to give him everything that I have. So maybe fill out the card. Let me give you one other way, and we're going to wrap up. One other way. What if you use this response time, and maybe you go to someone in another generation than you, Maybe you find a student that means a lot to you, or maybe you find an older person here in the room that means a lot to you, and you just pray together during this final song to say, I realize old and new is so hard. I realize that tension is so hard, but we're going to come together as a church, and we're just going to pray for one another. I realize that, that may be a little bit out of the comfort zone, maybe more than you want to do, but if you would take that step, I think it would be a really powerful thing to do. We're going to sing one more song together, and after we do that, we're going to be dismissed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that when we gather together, you don't call us to come up with a new message. You don't call us to come up with a new hope for the world. We know we live in a world of hot takes where people have new things to say about a subject every day. God, there is an element of being a part of the church that connects our lives to all of history. That what you have done since Genesis 1, where you spoke creation into existence, you continue to do today. And so, God, we don't want to lose that. We want to study church history. We want to know how you've worked before. We want to connect our lives to generations before. And at the same time, God, you continue to lead us into the future. God, to know that abundant life, that the promised land, that your kingdom is set before us. And God, we just want to run into that. We want to move ahead into that based on your word and on your power. 
God, thanks for this church family, for the chance to be a part of what you're doing here. Let us sing this last song together. Let us pray together as your people. God, let this last time here be an act of worship. And God, continue to send us out from here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.